Isaiah 26, 3 says, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 164, and I am your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. You know, my goal with the podcast is to help you and equip you with everything you need to become the parent you want to be. Not the parent I think you should be, but the parent you want to be. And my guest today is Dr. John Deloney, and boy, can he help you. John is a mental health expert with two... PhDs in counselor education and supervision and higher education administration from Texas Tech University. Prior to joining Ramsey Solutions in 2020, he also spent two decades in crisis response, walking with people through severe trauma. Now, as a Ramsey personality, he's host of the Dr. John Deloney Show. You got to listen to it, where he teaches on relationships and emotional wellness. All right, let's get to my interview with Dr. John Deloney on this episode of Parenting Great Kids. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me today on my podcast. I've been really excited about our interview. Thank you. It is uh, once again, it's such an honor. You're you're the you're the greatest of all time. You're the goat. You're the goat. So I'm so excited <laughs> no. to be on your podcast. Well, we're kindred spirits, that's for sure. And I was thrilled when you joined Dave Ramsey because I thought, yes, you know, you're filling in that big gap, uh, which is which is terrific. You have a fabulous new book out. Um, Own your past change your future. I love it. Immediately when people Thank read you. the title, they get it. And a lot of what you talk about is facing your past um, so that you can change how you live in the future. And when I talk to parents, I often talk about, you know, you come into your parenting with a preload. What I talk mm. about is maybe two pages long and you have a whole book about it. So talk to us <laughs> about, talk to us about why we need to pay attention to the past and the stories that we tell ourselves. So I think it's a good place to start is, is here. I noticed over the last 10 years or so working with the folks I was working with behind closed doors and then dealing with this in my own life, my own marriage, my own friendships as a parent myself, the culture really has presented us with two options. It's just reduced it down to either you are the worst thing that's ever happened to you, or you're the worst thing you've ever done or said. And you need somebody else, whether it's the government, somebody's got to come help you because this is all you're ever going to be. Or the other alternative we've been presented is forget your feelings. They don't matter. If you have a feeling that's a sign of weakness and a character defect, just grind it and kill it and drag it and go get it. And so Behind closed doors, I'm working with parents who are like, yeah, 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 I was abused, but that doesn't matter. My kid's got anxiety. What do I do? And then I'm talking to, you know, former uh, folks who are making more money than their grandparents ever could have dreamt. And they've got fancy titles and they're imploding because they never stopped even asking themselves, do I like this? They'd ever grieved their first marriage. They're stuck in this stuff. And so the trauma literature is what really began turning my wheels about a decade ago, which is as, you know. Vanderkolk says the body keeps a score on all this stuff and it will continue to solve problems for year after year. And we fall into as parents, we fall into the same model that we grew up with. It's just what we know. 
even if it hurt us, our body solves for what does it remember, right? So you can't get well unless you acknowledge where you've been and where you are. And where you've been and where you are doesn't mean you can't get well. It's both ends. So this book's like a new third path here. Yeah. How do you know what your pain is and how do you face your past if you don't have a good counselor? Is that possible? I think so. I think in our culture, and, and man, the first big, the first half of the book is really kind of unpacking this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our culture has done itself a disservice by pathologizing things like death, pathologizing things like not feeling good or sadness or grief. We've just removed all negative feelings in our pursuit of happiness, right? So it's it's in our founding documents. We have a right to pursue happiness. Mm-hmm. And we've turned that into you have a right to never feel any sort of discomfort ever, ever, ever. And so we're trying to solve for all this discomfort. And what I think we've done in the process, Meg, is we've, our bodies are wonderful signposts for us. If you're anxious, that's your body telling you something. If you're angry all the time, your body's telling you something. If you heart starts beating when your husband's car pulls in the driveway, your body's telling you, right? And so it's asking ourselves, what is our bodies trying to tell us? And honestly, I got to a season when, I couldn't even understand my body anymore. And I had to lean on community. I had to lean on close friends and say, hey, I'm, I'm, is this, this is the way I'm seeing this problem. Am I right? And they would say, actually, we've been waiting for you to ask that. You're kind of bonkers right now, Deloney. <laughs> and, um, and then there was a season when I knew, okay, I need to go get professional help, right? But I think, I think it's getting back in touch with just what is my body trying to tell me? here? Mm-hmm. Where am I not safe? Where am I not okay? You know, I totally agree with you. A number of years ago, when our kids are little, I hit the wall and I went into a major depressive episode that lasted about Mm. three years. And it had a profound effect on our kids, which I didn't realize at the time. Mm. I thought, well, you know, I'm going to do my best in front of them. And so my husband helped me work it through. And I finally did. But it's amazing how what we as parents are experiencing, and it it was kind of like, an explosion of all of these feelings. And I could trace it back, you know, to kind of a car accident. But anyway, the explosion of all these feelings comes out and then it jumps right on to our kids. So I think that as we go into this as parents, being naive enough to think that what we brought into parenting isn't going to affect us is really a ruse. So you talk about our stories as we're growing up, the stories we create about ourselves, about relationships, yeah. about the world. How do we create these stories as kids? Is it just the experiences we've had? Oh, I love it. Yeah. It's a great question. So um, I, I often tell parents, your kids absorb you and you can try to play. They will absorb it from you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, so there's the stories we're born into. And I was born in Texas. I don't, I don't know. Where, where were you born, Dr. Meeker? Uh, Massachusetts. Yeah. Okay, so you and I were born into very different stories about what life is, what's right and wrong, what what a man looks like, all those stories. Our churches told us stories. Our parents, our families of origin told us stories, right? Mm-hmm. And, they, and that they weren't really explicit. They were just, that was the air you breathe. This mm-hmm. is just what happens on a Sunday in Texas versus what happens on a Sunday in Massachusetts, right? And then there's those stories we were told. And they can be explicit, whether it was that coach that told you, you're never going to be anything, Deloney, or hey, Deloney, you can do anything, right? With some hard work and some dedication and or that third grade teacher or, what, or your parents or that guy who assaulted you and told you an implicit story that this is what your body's worth. Mm-hmm. It's mine, right? So we have these stories we were born into and the stories we were told. 
And where it gets dark and nihilistic is those become the stories we tell ourselves. And there's mm-hmm. some remarkable literature about we all think we're we're pretty smart and we trust ourselves. We all think we're better than average drivers. We all think we're a little bit better than average employee. And so why would we lie to ourselves? And so suddenly our mom tells us, oh, honey, that shirt makes you look pudgy and you want the boys to like you, right? Turns into a 40-year-old looking in the mirror saying, he doesn't want to see me without my clothes on. I should probably just turn the lights off and let's just watch Netflix together, right? right? So that story stays with us over time. And that's what you have to go challenge. You have to really be after those stories. Do we know they're happening at the time as kids? Do we know that we're feeling really insecure and fat when mom says to us, you know, that shirt makes you look fat or dad rolls his eyes when you draw something or, or do we just figure that's life? The way I explain that to parents is that a kid's body knows their head does not. And their head is taking cues from mom and dad. So here's a good example. When you're four, my four-year-old son trips and falls and I'm a good Texas dad and he starts crying and I pick him up and I say, that didn't hurt, quit. And he's, he immediately will do one, do this. He'll say, and this isn't conscious. He'll try to stifle his cry and wipe his face away. But in his mind and in his heart, he will think that guy's smart and that guy, I trust him. I, this hurts. I can feel this pain, but he says it doesn't. He must be right. So I'm I'm running at four to not, to not trust myself. And your body knows it gets anxious. It gets uncomfortable, but your head says he's right. And Mm -hmm. I will continue trying to solve that forever. Or here's the big one, Meg. When kids figure out that they are responsible for their parents' emotional state. If I don't get these grades, my dad comes unhinged. If I leave my shoes out, mom starts crying So suddenly a seven-year-old or a 13-year-old finds himself responsible for their emotional reaction of their parents and no kid can carry that weight. And I think it's, you you see, we say like, oh, 17-year-olds, yeah, it's just normal, they rebel. I think they come unhinged. They finally start to go, you know what? This isn't working for me. You know what? That boy that tells me I'm pretty, he works for me. I agree, yeah. Weed makes me hurt less, right? I'm gonna run off that away. So they'll, they'll find it. Yeah. You know, I totally agree with you. Um, And I think that particularly when you look at the culture and you look at, you know, parents in the 70s, I guess, and maybe in the 60s, talked about the fact that their parents never showed up for them and their parents never came to baseball Mm -hmm. and their parents needed to encourage them. So I think the next generation went the other way. And we've got the helicopter parents, the parents who are signing your kids up for everything. And my concern about that, and I see this, and I'm sure you see that too, is you set your kids up to feel like they are responsible for dad or mom being happy if they follow through, if they become really good at soccer then mom and dad will be happy. So they have to keep going. That's a tremendous amount of pressure. And I don't think parents see that. So as we parent our kids and we think about ourselves as kids, how do we identify when things are going in the wrong direction as kids, where, you know, your kid, your teenager feels they're you know, they're responsible for your feelings or you as a teen felt that you were responsible Mm. for your parents' feelings. How do you uncover that? If I find myself angry at a little league game, that's psychotic, right? If I find myself at work doodling, 
the names of the Little League kids, the elementary school children who I'm going to put in the, the Pee Wee League football game this weekend, if I'm strategizing about that, mm-hmm. if I am at, in the middle of the night wondering how good my daughter's going to do in her horse riding lesson, then I know that problem is mine, mm-hmm. right? We've just completely lost balance here. So where did that problem start? Let's take that parents who's doodling, okay, or who's upset okay. about the horse riding lessons. Take us back to when that, that person was 10. What's the root of all that? At some level, they were, um, sports might, may have been an escape for them. And so they, by nature, think that my kid wants, I got a lot of esteem as, out of that as a kid. I want my kid to get that kind of esteem. I was, that was the time that dad smiled. Dad actually showed up to those things. Mom didn't yell so much, or she patted me on the back that one time when I scored the touchdown. Whatever the thing is, and I want, and I think it's all out of, done out of goodwill. I want my kids to experience those victories I had, mm-hmm. or I believed the coach said I have to yell at you. That's all only way you can learn, and I only have one model of motivation, and that's to yell real loud. So I'm just going to pass that along to my kid, and I think inadvertently. We now live, and again, this is a big chunk of the early part of that book. We now live such hollow existential lives. Our relationships are such a mess. We're so lonely. Our work is such a mess that we have found esteem in our kids' success. (laughs) And their success now props me up. We believe that our kids' success is an indication of how well we're parenting. It's our scorecard. And that's absolutely nonsense. And the kids are the ones paying the price for this. And, well, that's not true. Adults are paying the price too. Because now we're, you, you've you talked to the parents whose last kid goes to college and they look at their spouse and think, who are you? Who right. am I? I don't know any, I don't even know who we are anymore, right? Yeah. Because we've outsourced our identity to elementary school kids. I, I was working at Texas Tech University. It's, it's a, a research one university. I think it's 40,000 students or 35,000 in Texas. The number of grown-ups wearing college athlete t-shirts with their names on the back. These are teenage kids that are dictating the economy of a local, right, of this particular football player that played for the college team. I just thought, man, we are way out of balance here. Way, way out of balance. I can imagine University of Michigan, right? I'm all about college football, but... It's become our our lives, our identities, right? Our, our idol. Yeah, it really is yeah, our, our idol. idol. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard because I think parents really, really want to do well by their kids. They want their kids to experience right. the good things they had. Yeah. They, they want to um, yeah. avoid the bad things that they had for kids. So, and I totally agree with you that there's this emptiness and this loneliness that we have as parents that our kids are now having. So... I really want to jump forward, but I don't want to jump forward too soon because you have two halves of your book, you know, (laughs) the past stories and then how you rewrite your future. So we'll just sort of um, wrap up the past stories. What are the most common past stories that Mm. kids have that come forward and they bring into their parenting? I know that's a hard question, but if you could just pick a, a few of the biggies. I think some of the big ones are, I don't look right. I don't, um, nobody understands what I'm feeling because they've never been taught the language to model that. Uh, the feelings I have are all by myself, right? It's that social norming stuff. I'm all alone out here on an island. Um, that profound loneliness, even in a crowded room, even surrounded by people that love me. I'm seven years old and I'm sitting in the back of my school class. 
and I'm completely and totally alone. I think those are big ones. But I think that one of the, 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 the probably the main one is I don't look right. I'm the wrong color. I'm the wrong size. My hair's not right. I'm too tall. I'm too short. I'm too fat. I'm too skinny. We carry that. That's when I hear a lot. And it just manifests itself in so many bizarre ways. Um, it causes people to, you know, not make eye contact when we talk or to not say yes to going out on that date or to not say yes to going out that group of people or I'll just stay at home or not putting myself out there. And ultimately that lead that just has a like a multiplier effect. It's like compound mm-hmm. interest except the wrong way, right? Mm-hmm. And you end up alone and isolated or without skills to be a be a close friend. What do you mm-hmm. see in your practice? <laughs> I'm interviewing you. No, exactly the same. And what I'm concerned about now is that kids before COVID had all of those feelings and now they're they're ex- not exaggerated, but they're magnified. So I saw a lot right. of kids who were lonely and had some anxiety. And I honestly, it's rare to meet a teenager that feels good about who they are, other than superficially. Right, right. But to feel like, you know, I'm a really, really good person. I have value. Um, And so they came into COVID feeling lonely and worthless and that nobody saw them, nobody heard them, even their parents. Um, And then it all got a lot worse. So I see exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about. And it's very, very frustrating because when you're talking to teenagers or young kids who have these feelings, it's hard for me as a person outside the family to convince the child right. otherwise. I will often ask That's kids right. a couple of questions. One of the things I ask is, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And sadly, mm-hmm. without skipping a beat, 90% of the teenage girls say famous and thin. And when I kind of uncover a lot of that and I find out that kids are very lonely and I know their parents and I know their parents love them, I will say, well, who? And they'll say, I know my parents love me, but. Um, and I'll say, well, well, who else loves you? I don't know. Does God love you? I don't know. And that's very, yeah. very it's sad. All conditional. Very, it's all conditional. It's all conditional. So we have yeah. all those stories and then we come into adulthood And all of those stories (laughs) are shaping who we are as 20 and 30 somethings. And they're all coming out sideways if they haven't already when you're 14, which is what (laughs) I see. They have these meltdowns. That's right. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. And and I totally agree with you. I don't want to get off on my thing, but teenagers are not supposed to be jerks. They're not supposed to act out. They're not supposed to want to stay in the room for five hours. And I think that's an excuse that we as parents use to say, well, you know, um, this is normal for my kid. He's really not hurting. You know, your kid really shouldn't be having meltdowns and so forth. Parents, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dr. Deloney. I sure am. He has so much great information. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of my conversation. Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. My guest is Dr. John Deloney. So move us in now to our 30s, and we're still feeling that low self-esteem. We're still struggling with wanting approval. We're still struggling with wanting to be thin enough or have our, our needs met. They never were. We feel they aren't now. What do we do? I, I think it's really important, Meg, because I've struggled with you know, body image my whole life too. And I grew up, my parents did the, I mean, they did a great, great job, 
but they were Weight Watcher gurus. Like, and oh. so they were on a diet from the day I was born until, right? And, and that's just, that's the air we breathe is that you mm-hmm. always need to be watching this. So I've struggled with that. Ultimately, I had to learn this. And this is what was a good moment for me because I always had moralized my, my body image issues. I moralized it. I thought it was a character flaw. And when I realized my body was registering this as trauma, that my body kicks into fight or flight when I don't feel good looking enough to be in a room with other people. When I go to, when Dave Ramsey invites me to a party and all these fancy people show up and I, my third grader comes out that remembers the big teeth and the zits and all this, you know, and I immediately want to shuck away. Mm -hmm. There is a biochemical price I'm paying right there. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just, well, you need to buck up, son, and get on out there. My body's saying, hey, we're danger, danger, danger. You're not safe. There's a bear at the front of that cave. We need to get out of here. Or you need Mm -hmm. to fight it, right? Go in there swinging with all of your insecure, like tell your stories and exaggerate. Or go in there and try to make the biggest inappropriate joke to get the laugh. Or whatever our defense mechanisms are that we all have, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's important for everybody to know, hey, these stories have a physiological cost. They're not just you're a weakling or you're a failed moral character, right? So I think that we have to be willing to be bold and brave and acknowledge reality. The grief is the word I use, but here's my definition of grief. Grief is simply the gap between what I hoped or I wanted to happen and what actually happened. Mm -hmm. I thought that my wife was going to live forever and she got ovarian cancer and passed away at 40. I, and that, not me, I'm, I'm, I'm right, telling stories right, here. Sure. But I, I thought that my kids were going to have a great childhood and one of them was abused by a coach. I thought that my mom and dad and I were going to have a great marriage as we got older. And then they turned into conspiracy theory, theory, crazy lunatics. And now we can't do Christmas together, right? Whatever the thing is, you have to own that gap or your body will try to solve for it forever. And that takes sometimes a professional, sometimes a group of friends. Usually most people can sit down with a journal and start writing and be honest mm-hmm. about Here's what I wished and hoped for, and here's what reality actually is. Mm-hmm. And then you begin to unpack those stories that you write down, and then you can start to take ownership of what comes next. So when you rewrite stories, how do you do that? I mean, okay, we understand that life isn't fair. My spouse died at 40. I'm really mad at God. I'm very, very sad. So when you say rewrite your stories, is it something that you you tell yourself you give a different narrative in there or how do you how do you move past that how do you rewrite that story i i think that's one of the great failures of the modern psychological movement is that we could think our way out of stuff we could just sit around and ponder it and then it would become new if i just get the right thoughts then all my body will take care of itself and we know enough from the trauma literature that's just not true So I I tell everybody to, and this is a loop, right? This is going to happen for the rest of your life. Because as soon as you get on both feet, Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And as soon as that's over and you get back on both feet, your mom's going to call and say she's got cancer. And as soon as, right? So this happens the rest of our life. Mm -hmm. I I don't believe with all of my heart, I think the literature backs me up here. I don't believe that there is any sort of sustainable life change that does not include other people in your life. Mm-hmm. You can grind and claw and scratch your way to losing your 40 pounds. It will come back if you're not in a community. If other people are your emergency fund for life is the way I like to say it. And it's not a matter of if, it's when. So before anybody endeavors into, I need to change everything, I recommend they get people in their life that's going to walk alongside of you, you can text, that you can call, whatever that looks like. Then the second thing is, is you have to be willing to change your thoughts. And this was a big 
the the literature on thoughts is out of the University of Michigan. I think it's um, uh, Ethan Cross wrote a great new book recently called Chatter, and he studies that voice that just won't stop going in mm-hmm. your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, that we have a lot more autonomy and control over our thoughts than we thought we did. Mm-hmm. And then we have to be about changing your actions. I can't sit around and complain about being depressed all day and be frustrated. And I won't go see my counselor. I won't take my medication or I won't get up and shower. I've got to be, or I won't have people in my life. They're going to walk alongside me. Even on those dark days when I can't get out of bed, they're going to help me out of bed. Right. Mm-hmm. I have to be willing to change my actions one tiny step at a time. And all of those things, change your thoughts, change your actions, get connected. Those things work together to help you begin to rewrite these stories. I think that connection is hard because I think to have it's a, so that, hard. Meg. It's so hard. Um, I don't know if you have this and I don't I don't I don't mean to sound. I don't know. I don't I don't want to come out the wrong way. But when you're a fairly public person, you're much more public than I. Friends come at you with this image of you and. It's, it's wild. I don't know where they get this image, but they do. And you come in and, and it makes you sort of feel that you don't want to be really vulnerable because part of you doesn't want them to really see that you're really kind of a crazy person underneath it all. Or, you know, it's just like, yeah. you know, don't you hey, know, trust me. Yes. Yeah. Don't look under the hood. But I think those friendships and communication and uh, community are very, very rare. And I think you have to work really hard to find. I would say there are two or three women in my life who know everything about me. And it's very important because I want to be held accountable for doing stupid stuff. You know, if I'm going to go off and do something Mm -hmm. stupid, I need to be able to go to somebody and not be embarrassed and say, this is what I want to do. Help me. Um, right. But those right. those relationships are are hard to do or hard to to come by, particularly for men. So talk to men about how they can establish community. Yeah, I I, I felt bizarre writing this chapter in the book, but there's a whole chapter on how to make friends in your 40s and 30s, and we just we are we're put in so many situations to make friends. I know not every kid does. I know loneliness in childhood is just abhorrent, especially since they've taken away recess in the arts. But the chances for kids to have friends is so they just sit you at a lunch table, right? They hand you a ball and say, y'all go play. Like that's just part of childhood. And the older you get and the busier you get. And now we have a culture that says success is a big house with streaming TV that you never have to leave ever. That means you've won, which means you have nowhere. You don't see people in the theater anymore. You don't see people at church. I'll just stream church and I don't even have to go to that anymore. And so we've isolated ourselves. What, what I tell men, and I'm, I don't care if you're an elite military folks, which I talk to, or who, I don't care who you are, you have to understand the biochemistry of loneliness is killing you. Mm-hmm. And it's a slow, miserable, painful death that kills you and everyone you love. Mm-hmm. And that's usually where I start because most men will say, oh, I don't care. But they do care about their families and their loved ones. Yeah. And if I can start there, then sometimes we have a shot. And I, you brought up a great point that it's important to point out. We have dumped so much expectation on every, we've made every interaction with every person, the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. I said this wrong thing. I made this joke. I didn't, they, that person thinks I'm crazy. I think if you have more than three or four or five people in your life that you're telling everything to, you're probably unhealthy. You probably Mm -hmm. are looking for affirmation with your wild stories. Mm -hmm. I think we need a couple of core people, but I have 
multiple people that I see regularly that I talk to that I don't talk about, you know, when me and my wife are having disagreements about sex and intimacy, I don't, I don't, there's not 20 people I have that conversation with, right? Yeah. Or yeah. if I'm thinking about quitting my job and moving, I'll run that by two or three of my oldest friends, right? Or one or two of my new friends that I trust, but it's not going to be a public announcement. So I think it's okay to have varying levels um, of people that you interact with. And I, I'm with you. Uh, my research was on loneliness in, in those in our communities that have quote unquote made it doctors, lawyers, preachers, college presidents, those that other people go to. And I thought I'd uncovered something. And I came to find out that if you're a plumber and you have three people working for you, you're that person too. You can't show weakness. So it's not just fancy people. It's everything. No, exactly. We're all melting. And so we've got to we all have an incentive to have less and less interaction with people. And we just have to know that that's worse than cigarettes. It's cocaine. It's terrible. It's killing us. And we have to loop back around to being uncomfortable, risking and being in relationship with people. It's hard, Meg. It's hard, hard, hard. It's very hard. Uh, Yeah, it's terribly hard. And I would say that, you know, feelings of loneliness and insecurity and low self-esteem have, they cross all socioeconomic barriers. Can can I tell you this, Meg? Can can I point something out? Here was a big awakening for me. This is like five years ago. I wish I had this all figured out a decade ago. If I like a movie and you don't like it, or you think that my faith is somehow less because I think this movie's funny or silly or scary, but you don't get a vote in my life. And I realized I had given in my pursuit to make everybody happy, to be a peacekeeper, to make sure everybody around me is okay. I had outsourced all of my opinions and thoughts and feelings and ideas about myself to others. And now I'm not quite there yet, but I'm getting there. I can still be your friend and know that you voted for the wrong group, right? right. I We're still friends. Right. And um, I have been called the liberal guy at the table. And then I've been called, golly, dude, why are you so conservative? I love yeah. that about the, my communities because right. they're so bonkers, right? I love it. So yeah, yeah it, We've got to be able to get past some of this. Well, I don't want to be the weird or the crazy person. I don't care anymore. This is just what I think is funny. And if you don't want to be my friend, that's you've got your issues, right? Yeah. If you're not willing to do that, then you're going to raise kids who are not willing to do that. And we have yes, to raise yes. kids who are willing to do that because they're up against so much the whole cell phone thing, which I won't get into. Oh, you know, and I'm believe <laughs> I believe that kids have cell phones because parents feel like a better parent if they give their kid one because so and so gave their exactly kid one. Exactly right. So it really has nothing to do about yep. kids. Yeah, I'll tell you, John, I could talk to you for an hour and a half. This is You're so good. We really, we really just scratched the surface of your book. It's so good. Own your past, change your future, a not so complicated approach to relationships, mental health, and wellness. Every person needs to read this book. It's so eye-opening. It doesn't matter how old you are. There's something for everybody in there. So thanks so much for joining me, John. You are such a blessing. I'm grateful for you, Dr. Meeker. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Deloney. You have to check out his latest book, Own Your Past, Change Your Future, a not-so-complicated approach to relationships, mental health, and wellness. It is fabulous. I also encourage you to listen to John on the radio at Ramsey's Solutions, and just Google him, John Deloney, D-E-L-O-N-Y. Now, let's get to my points to ponder. One, when you're lonely, don't stay 
home. You know, many of us hibernate when we're lonely. I do. But the problem is when we do this is it makes us lonelier. And then we start thinking thoughts of why people wouldn't want to be with us. And then we get lonelier. You know, COVID has made many adults and teenagers and even young kids very lonely. So when you feel like this, think of someone in your neighborhood, a parent in your child's class that you can ask to have coffee with. So this may be awkward at first, but that's okay. Do it anyway. The worst a person can do is tell you no. If no one wants to meet for coffee, ask your local library if they need help or a teacher who might need a part-time helper. If you work at home, ask coworkers to meet you for lunch. Two, face your thoughts, particularly the painful ones. One of the toughest things for parents to do is face the feelings that drive our behavior. Often these thoughts can be negative or painful. Many people don't want to face them because they are painful, but do it. You may need help from someone, but push yourself to do it because that's the first step to mental health. Three, make a commitment to yourself to move forward. You can do this while facing your past. And in order to move forward, you'll need to train yourself to confront the old negative tapes in your head and talk to them. Reject them over and over and over, and eventually they'll be replaced by fresh, positive ones. I want to thank my guest and my friend, Dr. John Deloney, for joining me on the show today. You can follow John on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Dr. John Deloney, D-L-O-N-Y, no E, in your internet browser. Now let's recap my points to ponder. One, when you're lonely, don't stay home. Two, face your thoughts, particularly the painful ones. And three, make a commitment to yourself to move forward. So friends, before I go, I have to tell you about my brand new masterclass that is just about to be released. A number of years ago, many of you know, I wrote a book, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, and it became a global bestseller. And I think the reason it did is that because fathers who read it had their lives transformed. And that's what they told me. I wrote the book because I was so disturbed that dads were being put down in our culture. And they were told their kids didn't need them, particularly their daughters. And as a pediatrician, I couldn't stand that because the girls in my practice who had interested fathers did emotionally and physically much better. Even the research shows that any dad can be a fabulous dad and set an amazing foundation for a happy home if they understand and apply certain principles. So a lot of dads read my book, they loved it, and then they said to me, okay, now what do we do? The masterclass on Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters is here's what you do. So in addition to telling fathers step-by-step how they can implement the principles in the book, I took everything else I learned since I've been hearing from dads and I put it all together in the Strong Father, Strong Daughters Masterclass. It's an online course for every dad who wants to raise a strong, healthy, and happy daughter, and it would be a fabulous Father's Day gift. The Masterclass will be available for pre-order on Thursday, May 5th. That's this 
Thursday. So mark it on your calendar. And if you'd like to be updated when it's released, simply go to meekerparenting.com and you can sign up to be included. I'm really anxious to hear from dads who go through this course because I think they are going to love it. Check out meekerparenting.com. Look at my masterclass. And if you want to buy it now, great. It's cheaper if you pre-order it. But if you want to buy it in a couple months, it'll be there, but it will be more expensive. So until next time, friends, always remember that great kids are raised, not born. <laughs>